Good morning, family. Good morning, family. Indeed, it is a pleasure to be here with you. For those that don't know me, my name is Wayne Penn Jr. Um, I'm pastoral resident here at Riverside. Um, just grateful to see all your faces. I echo the sentiments of my sister. Uh, thank you for sharing your heart on that. Um, we are a church that does indeed have the blessing of having a quiver full. Uh, one of the nicknames I've heard is that uh, the church is actually referred to as Quiverside. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is a unique a unique blessing that we have here. So I, I would definitely encourage you to, to go to that lunch in April and really just kind of think about how you can, you know, serve along with us as we seek as a church to disciple and minister to our kids. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read our, our scripture text. I'll be coming from Psalm 126. Psalm 126. As we continue this series in Psalm of Ascents, the Psalms of Ascents, rather. Still hear pages turning, but when you got it, say, I got it. All right, all right. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There we go. I'm telling y'all, there's a talk back church in here somewhere. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tease it out however I can. Psalm 126, it reads, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? Father, I thank you uh, once again just for this time to gather, um, to gather around your word, to gather in worship, to gather amongst ourselves uh, in community. We thank you, God, for just your grace and your love and your kindness that you lavish on us each and every day. God, there are so many ways that you have blessed us, uh, blessings too numerous to count, God, ways that you've made and times that you protected us and just given us more than we could ever ask for. We're just so grateful, God, for your goodness towards us. And we just ask that you would help us, God, as we dive into your word, I pray, God, that you move me out of the way, that your spirit would speak with power, with clarity, with conviction, and prepare our hearts and our minds, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive. And God, we just ask above all things that you be glorified, um, that your people will be edified, and that the devil will be terrified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our children's church now is dismissed at this time. Look at them go. <laughs> Man, I'm going to grab my water here real quick. We're glad. We are glad. That's what I want to title uh, this message. We are glad. 
Um, I'm just going to really dive right into my first point. Looking at this, this passage of Scripture, the first thing that the author brings to mind is the fact that God has restored. Say that with me. God has restored. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's unclear what specific situation is being referred to here, but that, that's not really an issue. There are plenty of situations that we could look at in Israel's history where God has restored. <laughs> Throughout Scripture, whether it's captivity or famine or siege or loss or disease, whatever the case, the restoration that God provided was miraculous, hard to believe, so amazing that it was like a dream come true. We can go down the list. Delivery from slavery in Egypt. You remember that in Exodus, right? Restored relationship between Jacob and Esau. That seemed like a far-off dream. Jacob had no idea that he would ever be restored to a relationship with his brother. David's story, period. <laughs> in the discussion, David's entire story is an example of God's restoration. The return from Babylonian captivity. Y'all remember that? They, 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 they often lamented, you know, well, how can we sing songs of Zion in a strange land? Oh, that we can get back. And all of a sudden, they go from being taken into captivity cruelly to being able to return to Jerusalem. It was like a dream come true. I'm reminded of Job as well. Y'all remember Job, right? Good old Job. Job who lost everything. The measure of what Job lost if you, ever, if you haven't read the book of Job, you've got to read that book. Uh, the, the same language that's used in Psalm 126 and 1 when it says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, you can also see that language in Job 42 and 10. It says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Think about what he lost Job lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, his children, all in the span of one day. If you recall the story, Job is, you know, sitting, chilling, right? And all of a sudden, servants come and say, hey, man, look, your oxen, all your animals got wiped out. Then somebody, before that servant is done speaking, they say, hey, you know, you lost this, you lost that. And then all of a sudden, a servant comes and says, yeah, uh, your children were, were enjoying a nice dinner, you know, eating and drinking, and the house collapsed on them. And all of this just kind of kept, kept coming rapid fire. Before one person was done speaking, another person came. It was disaster after disaster after disaster. And then on top of that, he was afflicted with loathsome sores, so painful that he was taking a piece of broken pottery to try to scrape himself to get some kind of relief. Think about the extent, the degree that Job suffered. He had to resist the suggestion of his wife to curse God and die. He had to resist that. He may have felt like doing that. <laughs> he had to deal with friends who badly misdiagnosed the situation, and on top of badly misdiagnosing the situation, they didn't know when to shut up. He was cross-examined by God himself in a way that left him humbled, speechless, broken, yet uniquely loved. 
and uniquely reminded of God's steadfast love. When Job is restored, he's given twice as much as he lost. This kind of overwhelming, mind-blowing restoration is what's being pictured here in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored our fortunes, it was like we were like those who dream. It's kind of a blown your mind. I, I will say, yes, he's blown my mind. Has he ever restored you in a way or restored things around you to where it was like this far-off dream come true? I don't know if you've experienced that, but I, I have experienced that level of restoration. I have a picture I want to show you. There we go. That girl is fine. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> listen, I, I want to I share with you what this picture represents. I've shared... I'm an open book. My, my wife often has to kind of get on me at times of sharing too much. But that picture represents a type of restoration that I did not really know my wife and I could experience. So early on in our marriage, um, she was already like a daughter to my, my mom and dad. So when we met, met in 03, started dating in 06, she was already like a daughter, already plugged into the church, doing a whole lot. Her and I were kind of, you know, running at the same pace, serving alongside each other. And then we got married, and I didn't make the change in relationship dynamic in my head that I should have. So I thought, you know, well, we can do things at the same pace and, you know, interact in the same way, you know, with my mom and my dad and things at the church as we were before we got married. Nope. Not the case. As a result of that lack of wisdom on my part, I, I neglected my wife in numerous ways. I really did. Um, to the point to where I, I started to see, uh, I started to treat her as if she was not a priority in my life. I'm just being open and honest right now. I got to a point to where, because of the lack of healthy boundaries, she felt like second fiddle to the work of the church that I was doing. She felt like second fiddle to my mom and dad in a lot of ways. And it got to a point, y'all, where I'm going to be honest, I didn't know if our marriage was going to last. Like, because of her hurt, because of uh, my blindness to what she was dealing with, there was a certain point, maybe three, four years into our marriage, where we were at separate churches. And it would, it, it would be like, you know, um, throughout the week, when we didn't have a week that we didn't have an argument, uh, things would seem to go okay from Monday to Saturday. And then Sunday, you could cut the tension with a knife. And that put strain on our relationship. It put strain on my daughters. It, 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 it was a bad situation. But God. That picture represents a restoration that I, I, I could only really dream of. Because when God did do the work of restoring, it wasn't quick. It wasn't sudden. But when God did restore my wife and I, it created a unity in us that we would not have had otherwise, to the point to where even now, it's, it's me and Fee against the world. I love y'all. I really do. But it, it's, it's me and Fee <laughs> against the world. That kind of restoration in the midst of the situation it was like a far-off dream. I didn't know if we would ever get to a point where we'd be unified again. And yet, here we are, mind-blowing. And here's the beautiful thing. Not only did that restoration seem like a dream come true, 
but it also gave us permission to dream again. If God can do that for us, what, what else can he do? What else can he do for us and with us? I kind of think of that in terms of, you know, even our, our, our time and us being here at Riverside. What, what could God do with me and Fee and my daughters? What could he do? Riverside family, think about how God has restored you before. If he can do that, whatever that is, what could he do in the future? What, what could he do? They were like those who dream in this passage. God had done, God had restored them on a level to where like it, it was dreamlike. And as a result, you see in verse 2, our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Now, the laughter here is so much deeper than just laughs, right? It's, it's, it's so much deeper than jokes. I love a good joke. I, I, I have a sense of humor. I love to laugh. I really do. But it, it goes deeper than just laughing for the sake of laughing. The joy here in verse 2 is, is so much deeper than making a lot of noise. It's more than that. You know, we, we, we've heard the old adage that, you know, laughter is, you know, a good medicine, right? It's based on Proverbs 17 and 22. Joyful heart is good medicine. Those of us in here with any kind of medical background, which I, I was telling them in the back, I have more friends now in the medical industry or the medical <laughs> profession than I've ever had at any point. That is a blessing here at Riverside. Those of you that have any kind of medical background know that laughter is healing. It can be healing for you physically, mentally, and emotionally. This laughter and these shouts of joy weren't shallow. This is not just laughing for the sake of laughing. This, these were evidences of God's healing. There was history behind this. Can, can, can you put my picture? Oh, it's already up there. <laughs> there there's history behind those smiles, y'all. There, mm. There's history behind those smiles, y'all. I want y'all to understand that the laughter and the joy in this text is tied to history. They, the children of Israel can go back and reference God's goodness in their lives and what he had done for them. And that was the basis for their laughter and their joy. There's a quote by Eugene Peterson that I want to share with you. It says, we nurture these memories of laughter, these shouts of joy. We fill our minds with stories of God's acts. Joy has a history. Joy is the verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God is doing. Joy has a history. And then the latter part of verse 2, it's, it's verified by the nations around them. That's the thing. God, God restored them in such a way that their enemies could look at them and say, yeah, we, we can't deny this. God's done great things for them. We saw as their enemies firsthand the depths that they had, had stooped to, had, had gotten to. And to see God restore them in the way that he has. Look, I don't like them, but I, I, I can't deny God has done great things for them. And then the author brings it home to his original audience. Not only can they acknowledge it, but we can acknowledge it. 
He's done great things for us. Take, take a minute to do that amongst yourselves. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, God's done great things for me. Okay, now, now turn to your other neighbor and say it like you mean it. Stop being cute. God has done great things for me. And we are glad. We're glad about it. Are we not? This brings me to my second point. God has restored, and God will restore. Now, the author shifts here in verses 4 to 6 from, from this amazing flashback to an earnest plea. Restore us again, Lord. So he's restored us before. God, I need you to do it again. But the tone here isn't really one of, of desperation. It's, it's full of hope. It's hope based on past experience. It's based on the history, y'all. If he did it before, Kelly, you can appreciate this, you know, being a, a Tide Tribute fan like me. If he did it before, he can do it again. Derek Kidner says uh, the psalmist gives us two images of renewal, one of sudden, instant renewal, and the other of slow, painful, laborious renewal. So you have, you have two instances of renewal here. One is sudden, one is quick, the other is slow. It's more arduous, it's more hard-earned. And he, he, he uses imagery here, for instance, he talks about the streams in the Negev. Restore us, God, like the streams in the Negev. The Negev was the name given to the southernmost part of Judah. It was basically a desert. The name literally means dry or parched. There were times when in this, in, in this portion of southernmost Judah where it'd be dry, it'd be parched, no life present, and then all of a sudden there'd be this sudden downpour of rain. And it could go from there being no signs of life to all of a sudden there being grass and flowers, all within this short span of time. It's almost like the author is saying, God, restore quickly. Restore quickly, please. By the way, it's okay to ask God that. I remember reading in The Praying Life, Paul Miller, great book. You got you to read it. He says that often with our prayers, in, in our efforts to try and be like theologically correct, we're not real. Well, I know that like God doesn't always answer my prayer right away. So maybe it's not right for me to ask God to restore a quick look. Okay. God, I need to be real with you. I am tired of this situation I need you to restore me quickly. It is okay to pray that. God may not do it right when you want it, but that doesn't mean that you can't be real when you're praying. God, restore quickly. Restore like streams in the Negev. Send this downpour of your restoring power right now into the situation. That's the author's plea here. That's one instance of renewal. The other... The author uses farming language. Now, those of you, are, who, who in here farms? Who in here gardens? I knew there was some. Okay. Th those of you that, that, that know anything about that, I, I have no historical context into that. Let me, I'm just going to be real. Farming is, is a process where the joy is hard won. 
You, you got to work real hard to have any kind of joy <laughs> come out of farming. You do. Because, you okay, you do the prep work of planting the seed. Y'all correct me if I'm wrong, right? You do the prep work of preparing the seed. You, you, prayer, you, you tend the soil. You get it to a point to where it, it's, it's good enough for you to even put the seed in, right? Then you sow the seed. Then you water. Then you tend to it, right? Right. <laughs> And that, 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 that's the thing. There, there's this plethora of things that can go wrong that you have no control over. So you could have done all this prep work. You could have planted the right seed at the right time, on the right day, at the right hour, the right minute, the right second, and something totally out of control ruin everything you've just done. And it, it can do it before you even sniff a harvest. So you put in all that work and you sow, and then you wait. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And it's, it's, it's taking this into real life situations. It's, it's a tear field sowing at times. We, we sow in tears sometimes because there's pain involved. There's disappointment, right? There's uncertainty surrounding your sowing. Well, God, I don't know if any effort that I'm making to disciple my kids is doing anything right? I don't know if any attempts to reconcile with my family or my friends or my brother and sister in Christ, I don't know if that's going anywhere. I want to believe that you'll provide for me and my family financially, but these, you know, these bills are stacking up. I, I want to believe that you can heal me physically. I want to believe that you can heal me after losing a loved one. I want to believe, God, that I can learn to trust people again after I've been abused. I want to believe those things, God. So I'm sowing this little seed of faith that I have, but I don't know. I'm, I'm uncertain. I'm, it's a tear-filled, uncertain sowing that we experience at times. But God hears you. He hears you. And that, the beautiful thing about this is that that tearful, uncertain sowing is all that he needs to work with. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 17 and 20? If you have faith as of the grain of a mustard seed, you can say that this mountain be removed. Granted, there are a lot of preachers and people who theologically take that out of context and they turn it into some prosperity-laced Theology, whatever, that says, you know, all you have to do is just sow money and you'll get this and you'll get that. That's not what I'm talking about here. Jesus said, you don't have to muster up enough faith for me to act on your behalf. You just need a little. And it, it, it can be filled with uncertainty and tears and disappointment and sadness. You don't have to put on a good face for God to work. Because the power is not in how much faith you have. The power is in the God who provided the seed in the first place. The author here writes with assurance, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy will reap in joy. God will restore. Why? Because not only is he capable, but he's willing. 
He wants to. God, God's not stingy. <laughs> he wants to restore. He's eager to restore. Looking at verse 6, it says, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, this is generic language here. Again, it's, it's still picking up on the farming theme. It's just reiterating what's being said here in terms of farming. But I see, I see Jesus in this verse, y'all. Watch this. He who bears, who, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing. Jesus bore the seed of sowing in himself. John 12, verses 23 to 24. You remember when Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying that, you know, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Unless a kernel of wheat, a seed of wheat is put into the ground, it remains alone. Because if it's not sown, no fruit can come of it. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do, do you see what Jesus is saying here? It's time for me to be glorified. And unless I'm put into the ground, I'll remain alone. Jesus, the man of sorrows, planted himself inside the soil of human flesh. He was crucified for the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John 2 and 2. And yet he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, right? He was sown into the ground by burial. Then he rose again, becoming, as Paul says in Romans 8 and 29, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus sows himself as a seed, and says, I'm, I'm sowing myself in tears. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs. But for the joy that was set before him, Jesus said, I'm going to sow myself in tears and reap in joy. God the Father sowed God the Son so that we could join in with them in reaping in joy. That's good news. That's good news. And this brings me to my final point. We are glad. Really, this whole message hinges on the last part of verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. It's not a superficial gladness. We don't have to put on a happy face. I've got two quotes from Eugene Peterson. That dude is a genius, by the way. Two quotes from Eugene Peterson I want to share with you. The first is, joy is not a moral requirement for Christian living. Joy is not a moral requirement for Christian living. You don't have to put on a face. You don't have to put on a mask of joy. It's not a requirement for you morally. It's a consequence 
It's not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. It's second nature. It's not something you have to work to gain. It's a part of the package. Eugene Peterson also says that Christians learn that laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. It's not. Pain and hardness, they they still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. That's that's really what's powerful about the gospel. I I used to think, honestly, when, when I was a younger Christian, that often the the power of the gospel was most displayed when God brought you out of painful situations or suffering. And then I got a little little bit of years under my belt, life experience, and I really realized that the real power of the gospel is when I'm in my painful situation, when I'm still grieving, when I'm still wondering how in the world this is going to work out, And God sustains me in the midst of it. And he not only sustains me, but he gives me joy in the midst of it. That's the power of the gospel. You know, this is a popular saying from the black church. That's why I love my roots. This joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, and the world can't take it away. Our joy and our laughter aren't phony. They have history. They are attached to the restoring work of a good and faithful God. Because that God is good and faithful, we can say with with total assurance that we are glad. Amen? Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord, I thank you that we can be glad and joyous in you, that we can laugh in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our tears, that we can have joy in the midst of our sorrow, that you have a history of restoring, not just in general, but in our own lives. God, there are reference points that we can look back to and see your goodness and your kindness and your love poured out on us. Father, we are grateful that you have a good track record. And God, in the midst of what we're dealing with now, whatever it may be, I pray that you would help us to remember our history, to remember, God, that those that sow in tears, all of us who have sown in tears, will reap in joy because you did the same. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.